This podcast is brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. BankInfoSecurity.com is your source for the news and views shaping security and risk management within the finance space. As international payments increase, the payments landscape is becoming more global. An uptick in cross-border payments has heightened concerns about money laundering, and 2011 is expected to see greater pressures from international agencies aimed at fighting AML. It's also expected to be a year when holes in global payment structures are increasingly targeted by international criminals. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with Hugh Jones, the CEO and President of Equity, a global AML solutions provider. Hugh, before we get started, could you give our audience a little background about some of the global agencies you work with and why you see 2011 being a year of increased cross-border money laundering? Thank you, Tracy. I'd be glad to. Acuity's been in the payment routing and compliance business for over 100 years. We are celebrating our 100th year as the registrar for the the United States uh, routing numbers with the ABA. Uh, We work with similar organizations in Europe with the European Payments Council as the provider of the EPC SEP adherence database as well as the uh, European Banking Association uh, where we are the priority payment screen scheme central registry. Uh, In those roles and others, uh, we have a seat at the table to see what regulations will be, uh, what payments look like when they cross borders, and unfortunately, we're able to also see, of course, when people try to uh, stop playing by the rules. Uh, so what we see is, of course, I don't think it's surprising to anybody to understand that cross-border payments are increasing. Uh, certainly, Black Friday showed an increased number of cross-border payments on itself on a single day. Uh, and there's, despite the current economic trends, there's no end in sight. And basically what this is showing is that businesses and markets continue to globalize uh, and it follows that as businesses and markets continue to globalize uh, financial crime will certainly follow the same path uh, the um, bad guys will look to exploit loopholes across financial systems in the same way they do within systems and as we increase complexity of cross-border transactions that actually creates some opportunities for I guess what I'll call nefarious intent. Now, you've noted that many financial firms have not made adequate investments in anti-money laundering solutions. What evidence suggests that the industry is lagging? We can see that investments can be both direct costs, you might buy better data lists, you might buy better filtering software, as well as indirect costs, uh, managerial focus, let's say, or staff training on how to handle hits and how to screen and when you screen your policies and procedures for keeping documents or screening people that have already passed screening procedures. Uh, Those are indirect costs. And what we're finding is there are still many companies, large companies and banks, that use uh, free lists, lists that are for free on the Internet. But those lists are, are full of holes. And unless the company deploys significant resources to fill those holes, they are at risk of a violation. It is for the burden of companies to make sure they're not doing business with any particular bank branch of a bank on that list, regardless of whether those bank branches are in a sanctioned country or an unsanctioned country. Uh, Regulations are going to become tighter in the future. It's not simply my word. Uh, IATA report about a year ago noted that only about 65% of financial institutions felt that budgets for anti-money laundering were aligned with regulatory compliance demands. 
but the news actually gets worse because the stat gets worse, according to this report, the smaller the institution, with only 25% of community banks responding that budgets were aligned with demands. Uh, I do want to make sure people understand that, that criminals go where they see there's opportunities. So are they really going to go to a tier one bank where they can reasonably believe will have a number of security measures? Maybe they will if they're very sophisticated, or maybe they use an opportunity to go to a community bank in a region, even the United States, where the security protocols are lax. And so actually, those banks that thought that they were outside of the fray, I would suggest from our experience working in the trenches, they are anything but outside of the fray. They're actually in the sweet spot if you're a criminal. And Hugh, would you say that U.S. banks and financial services providers are lagging? Uh, in some cases, yes. Some cases, no. Certainly some of the Tier 1 financial banks in the United States are best in class when it comes to attacking this issue. Uh, and I think that in many cases, with the exception of perhaps screening for politically exposed persons, uh, those are on par with the Western Europe. In Eastern Europe, uh, I imagine that the United States, from what I'm seeing, is actually ahead. Same with Latin America, APAC, Middle East, and Africa. Uh, but even in those regions, they are pouring uh, investment dollars to try to bring them up to, up to speed with the United States. Uh, we are seeing a shift away from institutions all over the world from buying check-the-box services, uh, and they are reviewing their real risk exposure. The demands are increasing, so, uh, and they're increasing in many of the growing economies as they wake up and realize, well, I want to do business with Western Europe, and I want to do business with the United States. And in order to business with those two regions, I need to play by their rules. And therefore, I better do something more than check the box. Now, when we talk about fraud detection and prevention, it gets to be a touchy issue with a number of financial institutions. And one reason is that it's difficult to show the return on investment. Now, you've talked about noncompliance when it comes to AML requirements, and of course, those are picking up. Can you explain a little bit, and do you think that banks are actually beginning to understand that there is a return on investment, it's just not something that they may see immediately? Let's first, I, yes, I think it's a great question. Let's first start by what happens in the boardroom when you disclose to the board that OFAC is handing down a million, $100 million fine. Do you really think at the board level they're saying, geez, that the $2 million we could have spent at shoring up our services would have been a wise investment? So simply by the framework of fines, I think at the board level, uh, firms around the world are realizing that actually uh, increasing their investment, uh, well, perhaps not an ROI argument, it is a reduction of risk argument in which that, that makes sense. So you take the expected value of the fine times the, the chance of being caught, you're going to get a higher number now given the size of those fines. So that's one. The second is that ROI can actually be calculated in many ways. It can be delivered as an improvement in the end-to-end -end disposition process. And by that, I mean the false positive reduction and case management efficiencies that you can find by using a sophisticated software and data provider. So whatever you were spending before you made that investment probably required people in seats to take a look at hits, and they have to discover whether that's a true hit or a false hit, a false positive or a real bad guy. And that takes money. It takes money and it takes people. There are tier one banks in the world today that use well over 100 people to do that every single day. 
Now, if using a solution like Acuity or others reduces that by 80%, that's 80 heads I've saved. So there's an ROI there. You need to understand that the game has changed. Just a few years ago, we had really one list in which maybe 10 entities on that list changed five or six times a year. Today, uh, Tracy, we, we have about 80 sanction lists and over 200 subsets of those lists in multiple languages that change daily. And if you're a global organization, you are going to be affected by the vast majority of those lists. Even if you're regional, you're going to regional in a global footprint, you're going to be affected by a number of those lists. What used to be managed by sort of one or two individuals at most, now sometimes takes an army of people to manage and disposition KYC matches. So if you make that argument that we are underinvested, to actually come up the curve, we need to make this kind of investment in order to handle all these lists and all of these hits, then you might want to make an argument that by using superior software and data and great process control, we will then reduce our capital outlay while maintaining an acceptable risk level. And now you've talked quite a bit, Hugh, about globalization and the fact that it's fueling money laundering. But can you talk a little bit about the gaps in the global payments infrastructure? How are those gaps to blame? How are they fueling money laundering? Well, there are a few areas there. First of all, geographically, we have in, the, um, in, in some of the emerging economies of Asia and Africa, we have various payment infrastructures uh, that have not developed to the types or standard regulatory controls uh, that we would argue are necessary to combat and avoid criminal malfeasance. So there are uh, emerging uh, emerging players in the global sphere that, in, in the same way, a single security checkpoint at a single airport in a single country actually makes the whole system of air traffic control more dangerous if it is lax. Same thing here. There are there are holes in emerging economies where. Uh, checks for new customers or checks for new customers who were okay but then turned bad, they were co-opted, let's say, but they're never screened again. Those types of checks don't happen, and therefore the security is lax, much like it would be if you had a lax security checkpoint at an airport. So, again, the more jurisdictions that exist with a lack of developed AML controls, uh, the greater propensity for criminal activity. Uh, in the in a globalized world. And what steps are international regulatory bodies taking to fight money laundering? And what new, perhaps global, requirements do you expect banks to face in the coming year? Types of regulations we've seen over the past uh, five years or so in the United Kingdom and the EU and the U.S. will likely become far more prevalent in uh, Eastern Europe, Russia, China, Africa, and Latin American countries. It is still acceptable to bribe for example, in certain cultures, uh, it is expected to uh, even bribe government officials uh, in, in the police forces of the world, uh, as well as the business forces of the world. Those types of cultural methods will likely be changing as the countries wish to participate in a global sphere. So specifically, you should expect to see increased screening for, for PEPs, or politically exposed people, and you should expect to see increased uh, regulatory pressure on audit trails to show that not only do you screen new clients or customers, but you also screen old clients and customers, and you screen your employees. 
think for a moment what would happen if somebody provided a uh, a large uh, transport company with a, a box, and the box had a bomb, and that bomb was caught, let's just say, in the port of Dubai, and it happened to look like a toner cartridge. Sounds familiar, right? But what would happen if the person who actually delivered that box to be mailed was actually delivering it to a cousin behind the counter? All of a sudden, you've got a major leak in your security system. So I believe that international regulatory bodies will take a finer point to these regulations to say, here are the rules for screening, and they're far more um, significant than simply know your customer when they come in to open an account. It will be always know your customer, continually know who you're hiring, continually, and know your employee once they are hired, continually. And that will increase the, um, the, the burden, uh, but it will also increase safety. Now, I'd like to ask um, a question that might not necessarily be applicable when we talk about the regulatory environment, but I'd like to ask about the single euro payments area and some of the initiatives that you're seeing in Europe. Uh, what are those initiatives, and how are they expected to impact U.S. organizations, if at all? Uh, well, the SEPA change will impact certainly many corporations around the world who are not currently in compliance with the SEPA payment uh, scheme. Uh, it will increase their cost if they are non-compliant. They will be charged for non-compliant payments. And you'd be surprised how many businesses around the world are not actually SEPA adherent. Uh, so that will be a significant investment for them. We suspect that within the next 12 to 15 months, that is going to really start heating up, and corporations around the world are going to need to know what it takes to be SEPA compliant. What we're seeing, of course, is that they are looking at their records of payments that they have in-house and cleansing them, or, in effect, transforming them into SEPA compliant payments. So that's a cost. It is also true that if you make a SEPA payment, which is a faster payment, it's a lower cost, you know, it also will be screened. Uh, so you will certainly have screening for SEPA payments, and you will not be, uh, in the future, you will not be able to simply rely upon a correspondent banking relationship to handle that for you. Uh, they will either charge you for the privilege, or they will ask you to get your house in order before you actually send them the payment. And for U.S. organizations, how might they meet this compliance, or what are some of the ramifications? Uh, right, sure. But I suppose that if you're a U.S. organization and you don't make cross-border payments, then you don't have to worry about it as much. But most organizations do, either for supply chains or for clients. So if you're sending payments over into the uh, into the Euro world, uh, you do need to worry about it. Uh, otherwise, your costs are going to go up. So even if you're a U.S. domiciled company, SEPA is coming right at your doorstep. And again, as I say, between 12 and 15 months, in my opinion. Now let's go back to talk a little bit about some of the, the payments holes, the payments gaps that we talked about earlier, Hugh. What are some of the potential payments gaps that are likely to pose increasing risks for bankers and other businesses? Well, some of the issues stem from actually innovation. And, and new payment methods are actually quite uh, useful at, explo at exploiting convenience for the consumer. Uh, and that convenience is almost always backed by new technology, uh, excited entrepreneurs, and um, it's 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 not normally backed by people who thought through the compliance angle. So, for example, if I think about uh, emerging payment methods like uh, mobile payments using your phone, uh, going from mobile phone to mobile phone, uh, is that payment going to be screened? 
Um, is my mobile phone payment going to go to somebody who works for Al-Qaeda? Are 500 payments going to go to people from Al-Qaeda? What about prepaid cards? So if I can put cash on a card and then I can ship the card and that person can use that card any way they wish and get cash back in some way, shape, or form, maybe they don't spend all the cards, they get cash back from the uh, customer service rep, is that screened? Of course it's not screened right now. What about instant cards? The, uh, a new idea where you can, it's actually quite captivating actually, where you can create a, uh, a series of instant credit cards for your employees to use on specific things or specific cars or for specific gasoline payments. But when you create those, are they screened? Uh, how are they being screened? And then of course you have the sort of the fun ideas of uh, gold dispensing ATM. So I'm putting currency in an ATM and getting gold bullion. That one is always exciting to me. I certainly hope that they're screening there at that ATM. I'm not sure um, that anyone would argue that it's very difficult to, to turn gold into money. That's about as liquid as you get in, in some ways. When we talk about regulatory pressures within the U.S. and outside the U.S., what mandates do you see putting the greatest pressure on financial services providers? Uh, the U.K. Bribery Act comes to mind. Uh, it has been put only slightly on the back burner, but only for a little bit. It has implications that are far broader than the UK's borders. Uh, it is like uh, it's like the FCPA to the nth degree. Uh, and although the focus has slowed somewhat of late, basically it says uh, we you need to make sure that your organization is not conducting business in a way that we would consider it to be bribery. And certainly the FCPA folks would agree with that, given their enforcement that I've seen in the last few months. Uh, they're increasing their staff over 200% over the last 12 months. Their fines, we already talked about one, but there are many, many others. The idea that bribery uh, can get things done in the world, that is going to go away as these fines increase. And in order to uh, make sure and to prove to those regulators, whether they're coming from the U.K. or they're coming from the U.S., uh, that you do not engage in bribery is difficult. I've heard many times that people say the FCPA does not force you to screen for PEPs or politically exposed people. But actually, screening for PEPs in a uh, focused, disciplined manner is one of the best defenses that you have for showing the regulators that you agree with the FCPA's tenants and that you are in compliance. Right? You are. It's okay to do business with PEPs, but you got to know who you're doing business with, and you got to know that they're not using their role as a political podium to extract business in unfair ways. So I think that those two areas are going to be increasing. Certainly, the creation of the IACH or International ACH transaction and requirements for screening those types of transactions is something that's still a bit new to the industry, maybe 18 months old in some ways, and while some Tier 1 FIs <clears throat> or financial institutions have incorporated these capabilities. The downstream institutions, in our experience, are relying on their correspondent banks to, uh, to handle it. And we believe that uh, that will permeate all the way through. So the international ACH transaction protocol uh, does create a burden for downstream uh, banks, and they will need to screen for that, and they will need to comply with international ACH codes. Uh, it is also possible, finally, uh, that we will see increasing regulations on beneficiary owners, uh, similar to the EU directive. Um, is it okay to do business with somebody who has a bad guy on the board or who has a bad guy who is a, um, uh, a beneficial owner, somebody who is a minority owner but still uh, 
uh, has sway over the company. And the, it is very difficult. There is there there are a number of solutions on the market to, for determining beneficial owners, but obviously, you know, Jack Bauer twenty four aside, it's not that it's not that easy to determine uh, who is a beneficial owner and how far deep do you need to go to make sure that the business that you're about to transact is clear of beneficial owners who are uh, not on sanction lists. And before closing, Hugh, could you give us a two-minute global overview of payments and AML in 2011? What are the top issues and concerns banks and credit unions should be mindful of? Well, first of all, every time you open the paper, you're seeing regimes change right now. Tunisia, uh, Egypt, uh, Sudan. So just consider that for a second. Who stays on as a sanctioned person or entity or country and who, who moves off the list? Remember that one regime's hero is another regime's goat, right? If I just pick, say, Egypt, I mean, the, the New York Times found this print yesterday where they're talking about a steel mogul who is uh, particularly connected with the Mubarak's uh, now finds himself to be uh, a target of resentment, Ahmed uh, Ez. And you can just easily see that the ruling party in Egypt used to be, of course, beyond suspicion and certainly find it a business with, and similar with their associates. But a year from now, do you think that's going to be the case? Will that be the case in Tunisia when the ruling family has now left? Or will it be the case in Sudan because now they've had a peaceful split and the United States has said publicly that should they follow the law, Sudan will be taken off of a sanction list? So the changes that are going to occur in the next 12 months are going to be historic. So you really do need to stay on top of that or, or you're going to be screening against the wrong thing. And I do also believe that that link that I suggested earlier between FCPA and politically exposed people person screening will increase. Regulators will increase their investigation of are you truly compliant or are you not. And uh, I've heard many times pet screening is not necessary in the United States. I suggest that you take a look at that and argue it may not technically be necessary. It may not, but it sure does provide a great defense against FCPA. And finally, an understanding that the smaller banks around the world, community or regional banks, are actually at higher risk for money laundering. Now what do we do? And so those are three large trends that I see playing out really only over the next one to three years. I want to thank you again for your time today, Hugh. No problem. It's a lot of fun. Again, we've just heard from Hugh Jones, the CEO and president of Acuity. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kiff. This podcast has been brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. For more interviews, breaking news, research, and educational webinars, please visit www.BankInfoSecurity.com.